Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Awesome. Well, so good to see you all. And uh, what a, a great uh, time today. Um, why don't you grab a hand and we're going to get a date and pray. Holy Spirit, grab a hand. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing today in the church all around the world here. Lord, we just, we pray for your blessing. We pray for connection. Connection. Pray for connection and we pray for connection with you, Holy Spirit, each other. And uh, bless the speaker. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, I, I just uh, my my I just got one copy of my book. It'll come out this coming week, but I just thought I'd share. It's called "Uprising: The Epic Battle for the Most Fatherless Generation in History," and um, so that's the book. You like it? All right. How many like it? All right. Look at how many books we're going to sell. So good. So, um, I want to talk about vindication today, and uh, actually have a, a title for my message called "Grab a Towel." And, um, you know, several years ago, when we first came here, when Bill first came here, a thousand people left. And I like to tell the story that when I came, they came back. <laughs> Bill tells the story very differently than that. <laughs> um, no, on a serious note, you know, a lot of people left when, when the renewal hit, when Bill first came. And we were, you know, it was very challenging times. It was very challenging times. And uh, that many people leave. It's hard to uh, fund staff and all the things that, that go with that. And we were in the middle of the renewal, which I still feel like that renewal is still happening in our, in our movement. So beautiful. So many people touched, so many people changed. My wife went home drunk in the Holy Spirit every week, which was good, except for sort of ruined our football season. <laughs> she used to cook for all of us at football. They'd all come to our house and now she laid on the floor in the glory while we ate. McDonald's hamburgers. So there was some drawbacks to the renewal. Well, we were really, really in this beautiful season and we were just learning and growing. And, and it was, uh, I want to say it was beautiful, uh, but hard. I think you guys know it was sacrificial and hard. And I think, I don't know what year it was to be totally honest, but somewhere probably around the seven, eight, nine, tenth year, something just happened. I, I don't think it happened overnight really. I think it was like the observation was immediate, but I think it had been happening for a long time. And um, people just started coming from everywhere. Our school ministry doubled, and then it doubled again, and it doubled again. And our services were full, and we went to two services, and then three services, and then four services. And you know, pretty soon we were at nine services on a weekend, and all of them full, and still trying to find other buildings to put people. And um, our, our school ministry, we ended up having to have rent the civic auditorium out for our school. It just kept growing and growing. And, and it, it, was, it's, it is, it is and was beautiful. And uh, somewhere around that 10-year mark, I, I, I felt the Lord give me this word. I'll read it to you. He said to me, you've passed the test of sacrifice, but now you're going to be tested with the greatest test of all, the test of favor. And he said, protect your innocence. I'll read it to you one more time. He said, you've passed the test of sacrifice, but now you're going to be tested 
with the greatest test of all, the test of favor. And he said, protect your innocence. And um, there was a couple of scriptures, there was, uh, especially this scripture, that was really highlighted in that pivotal season. Proverbs 27, 21, I'll read it to you in the New American Standard. The crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and each man is tested by the praise accorded to him. I like the way the Message Bible puts it. The purity of silver and gold is, t- is tested by putting them in fire. The purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. Abraham Lincoln said this, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And um, I felt like we entered into, in that, those years, and, and I think we're in those years, um, the test of favor, where the Lord just poured out a spirit. We had, you know, <laughs> was, you know, typified glory cloud. We called it the glory cloud. And the Lord just literally showed up. I don't know if, if any of you, were actually got to see it with your, with your eye, but literally clouds of, I don't know what you'd call it. Like, it looked like, I don't even know what, I mean, I was here three times. The first uh, three or four times the glory cloud showed up, I was traveling, and I started like, how come it only shows up when I travel? <laughs> feels really, this is not helping my self-esteem at all. And I'm like, you know, and they're like, glory cloud showed up again. I'm like, oh, when I'm here, that doesn't come, and then when I leave, it comes, and but thankfully, like a few months later, it showed up and I was just like, see, see, um, but you know, it was good. But um, I, I, I feel like we, we have been in this season of, of testing in favor. And um, I, I, I want to uh, take you to John chapter 13, if you'll turn there. And I want to talk about I want to talk about the season of vindication, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. So John chapter 13, we're going to start from verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already uh, put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon, to betray him, And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from dinner, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he had girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, said, you don't know what I'm doing, but you understand it hereafter. And Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Simon said, then, Lord, wash my feet, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But he is completely clean, but not all of you, knowing that one who would betray him. And it goes on like that. And then he goes, verse 14, if then, the, if then the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and thus you're right. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you this example so that you should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. Um, before I comment, if we go to Philippians chapter 2 uh, and read that, then I would like to comment after that. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start from verse 3. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, for this reason, God highly exalted him. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want to just recount the story one more time and see if you can find the strategic humility in the life of Jesus. Jesus has, is, has become aware that Judas has just been accepted, if you will, the temptation to betray Christ. And at the, the next uh, chapter, we see Judas actually entering Judas, I mean, sorry, Satan actually entering Judas. And Judas is about to betray Jesus. He's about to turn Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. And Jesus, it says, and when Jesus heard that Judas had, had that Satan had convinced Judas to betray him, he took a towel. And he got low. And he says to Peter, how many of you know foot washing was a tradition among Jews? They, they understood foot washing. So Jesus takes a towel, he puts it, you know, I, I just envision over his arm, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing to you. I know what you're doing. You're washing my feet. No, no, you don't know what I'm doing. See, what I'm doing right now is defeating the enemy. The Steelers call it the terrible towel. The devil is terrified of the towel. And the Bible says that when the devil made his strategic move to possess Judas and take him to take Christ to the cross, it says Jesus humbled himself, even to the death on the cross. And because he did that, God highly exalted him. Because he took the towel and humbled himself. See, Peter, a few hours later, will take the sword and defend Christ. And Jesus says, what are you doing? See, it took Peter three times denying Christ to figure out that the towel is mightier in the sword. See, Peter, what are you doing, Peter? What I'm doing right here is I am ensuing, I am calling for the angels of heaven because I just got low when the devil got high. Jesus made a strategic move to go all the way down to the top. 
You know, God had a plan for Moses. You've probably seen the movie. And Moses knows that he's called by the God he doesn't yet know. Moses knows he has a call in his life. He doesn't know the God who called him, but he knows by instinct, by divine instinct, that he's called to free the people of God. His mother put him in a basket. You know the story. Floated him down the Nile River. The princess rescues him. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. And he knows that the call of God's on his life. And so he you know, kills an Egyptian, tries to break up a fight between his brothers, and his brother's like, what are you doing? And he ends up 40 years in the wilderness. How many understand, when Moses thought he could do it, he couldn't. And when he finally got to the place where he realized he couldn't do it, he was ready. (laughs) Joseph has a dream about being the head of a nation, the leader of a nation. Do you remember the story? He comes out and he tells his brothers, who already hate him, hey, I had a dream last night, you might want to hear about it. Yeah, y'all were bound down to me. And his brothers hated him even more. And his father, the next day, he comes out and goes, I had another dream, mom, dad, you're bowed down to me too. And Joseph is called to be the first fulfillment of a promise made to his grandfather, Abraham. Remember, Abraham had an encounter with God in which God said to him, you are going to be the father of many nations. How many of you know Joseph was the first person in Israel's history to actually practically be a father of a nation? He was given a multicolored coat. Why was it multicolored? Because it was a prophetic declaration, multicolored, that he would be the father of nations. His brothers don't even understand what's going on. They hate Joseph, right? They throw him into pit, and then they sell him into slavery. But what they don't understand is they take his multicolored coat off of him because they're jealous of him. And as a matter of fact, when when dad made him a multicolored coat, they even got more jealous. So they take that coat, and they dip it in blood. And they send it back to their father saying, Joe got ate by animals. But what they don't realize is that when they dip that coat in blood, all they did was baptize it into the blood of Jesus. And they took that multicolored coat, they took that, that, that prophetic decoration over Abraham, and it was carried by Isaac, then Jacob, and now Joseph is about to manifest this promise. But Joe's got a problem, and that problem is called arrogance. And Joseph has a problem with arrogance. And so he goes from, you know, the promise into the prison. First he goes into, first he goes into slavery and then into prison. And finally, 14 years later, into actual promise. And I, I just want to say this, that sometimes, everybody say sometimes. Sometimes the depth and the length of our trials is directly related to our attitude we demonstrate in the fray. What I'm getting at is sometimes we're in a trial and we're like, Lord, how long is this going to last? And he's like, when's your attitude going to change? <laughs> oh boy, that didn't get a very big amen. Didn't get it in any service, by the way. This was the worst, but it didn't get it in any service. Sometimes we're asking the Lord, how long is my trial going to last? And the Lord's like, when are you going to take the towel, put down the sword so that I can promote you? Are you with me? 
Because often we repeat the promises of God, but don't realize that there's an attitude that, that God promotes and there's an attitude that God resists. Are you with me? <laughs> you're not really with me, but you're kind of with me, right? Ultimately, Moses found a place of humility and freed the people of God. Joseph saved the very brothers that sold him into slavery. So don't make fun of people when they're down because they are poised for power. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar dreams of this, has this dream of this huge tree that's like covering the earth. You know how weird dreams are. And the birds of the air are flocking in this tree. And, and then... In the dream, an angel or some, someone, a watcher, comes and cuts the tree down and then for seven periods of time and, and then the tree grows back and da-da-da. He tells Daniel the dream and he says, and Daniel says, well, I wish this was about your enemies, not about you. And then the king's like, and what? What's this mean? He said, you're the tree. And, and, and you, you, you're, you're an amazing king, but the challenge is, is that you don't know that there's a king over the kings, and that you are a king, but there's a king of kings who's over kings. And until you figure out that all this prosperity isn't initiated by you, it's initiated by him. Until you figure that out, God's going to humble you. It's going to take seven years for that to happen, or seven seasons. And in, you know, the next year, he immediately, he loses his mind. And like some of the transients we see walking the streets so sad, talking to themselves, unkept, Nebuchadnezzar grew hair like feathers. He was out with the animals. He was out there mumbling to himself, completely lost his mind. At the end of seven periods of time, which I assume to be maybe seven years, he gets his mind back. And out of his journals, we read these words. Part of Nebuchadnezzar's journals were included in the book of Daniel. Let me read you just a portion of it. Daniel chapter 4, verse 36. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar says, at that time my reason returned to me. And my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and nobles began seeking me out, and I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for his works are true, his ways are just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. <laughs> I thought this was really, really cool, because Nebuchadnezzar goes, listen, when my, listen, when the, my mind restored to me, and I receive more glory and more splendor and the greatness of my, old, my kingdom and sovereignty and dominion. Man, you've never seen it like this before. And by the way, I want you to know I say this humbly. <laughs> I say humbly that I am amazing because now I know where the source of my splendor comes from. I know where the source of my dominion comes from. I know where the source of my, of my sovereignty comes from. And he says, I'm amazing because he's amazing. What I'm getting at is that sometimes, sometimes a breakdown is a door of spiritual awakening. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. You may be going through a very humiliating experience. But sometimes your breakdown is actually a breakthrough. Sometimes you think you're having a break, breakdown and God goes, no, that's a breakthrough. <laughs> you're like, I'm having a breakdown, I'm losing my mind. God goes, you're finally in mine. <laughs> you're like, I can't do this. And God goes, finally, <laughs> finally. I, you, 
I have all these prophecies about being awesome and, and I just can't do this anymore. God goes, finally you're ready. Come on, Moses. <laughs> Are you with me? I'm saying, well, I just said it. I was about to say it again. I'm like, you'll just make the message longer. You already said it once. I want to read you a verse that's repeated four times in the New Testament. At least some version of this is. James 4, 6 says, But God gives great, greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me just point out that 1 Peter 5, 5 says almost the same thing. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Luke 1, 52 says almost the same thing. In, Jesus, in a Jesus quote, there's actually four, at least four phrases that come out of that phrase. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I like the James verse because it says, therefore submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I love that James ties humility to spiritual warfare. And he says, listen, you having a problem with the devil? Grab a towel. You got a problem with the devil? Grab a towel. You know, sometimes we, we, our spiritual warfare looks more like arrogance than humility. And I think that the devil is afraid of the terrible towel. I don't mean he's a stealer opponent. Um, the Steelers uh, have something called the terrible towel, the Steeler football team. Anyway, it didn't go well here. Yeah, if we were in their city, it would go much better. Pride opens the door to spiritual warfare in our lives. God's opposed to pride. You know, um, I don't know if you have this kind of picture in your mind, but it's hard to imagine that the God who died on the cross for us is opposed to us anytime. But the reality is, the reality of this God's superior kingdom is Jesus is actually opposed to the proud, but gives grace, gives you ability when you're humble. It's hard to imagine in the new covenant that God's ever opposed to you. But actually, four times through four different authors, God says, when you're arrogant, when you're proud, I'm actually opposed to you. How many know he's not opposed to you like he doesn't like you, he doesn't love you, or you're going to hell? He's like, I love you too much to leave you in this attitude. It's really important that we find a place of humility. Greatness is planted in the seedbed of humility. It's watered by the deeds of servanthood and it's cultivated by the hands of perseverance until it finally yields the harvest of royalty. Let me read again. Greatness is planted in the seedbed of humility. It's watered by the deeds of servanthood, but it's cultivated by the hands of perseverance until it finally yields a harvest of royalty. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, uh, you know, we have this verse, most of us have memorized this, right? If my people help me, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Did you notice what the hinge is? Remember last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that we're in a hinge season. We talked about the cardinal bird and the word cardinal comes from the word hinge and we're actually in a hinge season. I believe that God is closing the door of oppression. He's opening the door of opportunity. But what closed the door, what, follow me, what was the hinge for, what was the hinge for Nebuchadnezzar? He humbled himself. 
What was the hinge for Joseph? 14 years of humbling. What was the hinge for Moses? 40 years of humbling. What was the, are you with me? I'm saying, what is the hinge for, for God to shift an entire nation? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Before he even says pray, he says start with humility. I'm saying humility is the hinge that shifts a nation. We think we get the right president, we get the right governor, we get the right politician, we get the right preacher, we get the, and God goes, no, no, just start right here. Here, you want to know how to change a nation? Start right here. Just get right here. So the devil is terrified of the towel. I want to say, the devil is terrified of the towel. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. How many know, the way to predetermine how you're going to die is grab a sword. No, you didn't get that anyway. Think about it for a while. Adversity may be the mother of invention, but humility is the father of promotion. Adversity may be the mother of invention, but it is, it is humility that's the father of promotion. I uh, was watching, I love, I love Elon Musk. I love Elon <laughs> You love Elon Musk too, right? Because he may be on my stream. I've been watching him, and I, I believe he's going to watch my stream today. Someone's going to say, hey, man, this crazy preacher over there in Reading, he preached about you today. I love Elon Musk. I heard he's been reading the Bible. That's awesome. I'm praying for him to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus, the same encounter I needed. And uh, I, love, I love him for lots of reasons. I love that he actually thinks. That's just so refreshing. <laughs> And um, yeah, I love his humility. I really love his humility. I love his transparency. And I love he's a business guy, because I'm a business guy. I so relate to him. You know, I don't fish. I don't hunt. You know, I don't drink coffee. I'm practically exiled from the Johnson family for all those things. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, E and I might, might go to work for E, you know, for E and I. We might hang out together, because we both like cars, you know? And uh, I'm watching, so I've watched uh, portions of some of, this, of some of his interviews. And the other night, I was just watching YouTube, and there was an hour uh, um, interview with Elon Musk. And so I was just listening to it. And we got to a part of the interview, and the interviewer said to him, I understood, is it true that you slept for three and a half years on the production floor of your Fremont plant? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I did that. He said, the, he said well... He said, that must have been odd, the richest man in the world sitting, you know, sleeping on the floor of the production plant. The guy kind of chuckled. He goes, well, he said, and why'd you do that? He said, well, we just had so many problems. He said, our cars were just terrible. He said, our, our, paint, our paint production was bad. Our electronics was bad. Our mechanical systems were wrong. We just, he said, there was just so many problems. I mean, here's a guy talking about his cars and telling everyone, like, this, they were so bad. And I'm like, dude, you have no filter. <laughs> you and I, we are brothers. <laughs> I get daddy. <laughs> you got the brains, I got the good looks. We should start a company. <laughs> but on a serious note, I'm listening to him tell the story. And he says, yeah, he said our production was just terrible. He said there were so many problems that we just could not solve them. And he said, we, he said this, he said, nobody understood, nobody knew how close we were to bankruptcy. He said, we were days from bankruptcy. 
He said, I finally said, the only way this is going to, this only way we're going to fix these problems is if my team knows I'm more committed than they are. So he said, I got a cot and I put it on the production floor and I slept on the production floor for three and a half years because I want my people to know this is how committed I am to fixing this company. And I, I know it sounds crazy and you probably have to be a business guy or a leader to have this response, but I cried through that entire 15 or 20 minutes of the interview because I know what it's like to sleep on the floor. I know what it's like to start a business and I have no money. And Thursday night, Kathy would know. I go down to our shops and I would sleep on the I just lay down on the floor and sometimes in the middle of the night, often get there at five in the morning. We open at seven. Just lay there, God, I, you put me here. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I've got 20 guys working for me. They all have families. I don't know what to do. It's winter time. I have no money. I remember in the middle of all that, I'm sorry, waking up one night in the middle of the night, Kathy actually woke me. She had someone stealing our cars. And I called the sheriff, who I knew all the sheriff's deputies, and I said, hey, it's Chris Vallotton. Someone just stole both of our cars. And he said, Mr. Vallotton, I'm sorry they didn't steal your cars. They were repossessed. And repossessed our two cars. And guess where the repossession lot was? Yeah, on Main Street, right next to my shop. And I sat there for three days while we tried to figure out how to get money to get our cars back so we could get our kids to school. And I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be here in the middle of COVID. You can't do anything right. And then the racial unrest. And then what we went through with Benny and all of it. Like I know what it's like get here when there's nobody else here, just lay on the floor going, I can't do it. I know what that's like. So he's telling his story. And the other guy's listening. I don't, I don't know the other guy. The, guy. the commentator has evidently never experienced this because he's laughing as if this was a joke. And I'm like, no, no, this is a desperate man who in a desperate situation, the richest man in the world, like a, almost like a Nebuchadnezzar, to tell, and he said there's only one way to save this company and that's if the boss becomes a servant and ultimately he told the story over three and a half years his company turned around and at this I don't know what he is this week but last week he was the richest man in the world he tapped into something even though he doesn't know God he tapped in to the tell and he found a place of exaltation No, I pray that he finds a real place of exaltation. I'm sure you do too. But he's tapping in. He's tapping into something powerful. I believe that we're in a season of vindication. I want to tell you what happened to me about maybe a year ago. I'm really bad at time, so it might have been a year and a half or it might have been nine months ago, somewhere around. (laughs) I heard this guy was talking about when he, what happened when he, turned, when he changed his GPS into a man's voice. <laughs> He's driving along and, and the voice goes, it's around here somewhere, let's figure it out. <laughs> it's me for sure. But we were in a school ministry meeting, um, about, I don't know, 70, 80 of us. 
And it was, a, it was really just a manager. I was one of the managers. It wasn't a manager's meeting. It was a meeting with all the, all the school ministry staff. And it was really about business. But within a few minutes, uh, Dan started with just having them, some of the team stand up and give testimonies. And someone stood up and gave testimony. And someone broke out crying. And, and someone fell on the floor. And then and, and it just, like within minutes, it turned into a Holy Ghost. I mean, Dan wasn't trying to make it. I was, nobody, nobody was directing. It just was. It was like, there was no way to do business. Holy Spirit was doing business. And so, and it, just, and it just got louder and louder and pe- one person was crying and one person was over here laughing. People were praying for one another. And, and so I just like, I just laid on the floor. And, um, and, and I was laying on the floor and I was praying, not out loud, in my mind to the Lord. Lord, I pray for vindication. All this crazy stuff. Lord, I pray for vindication. And I just was repeating, no weapon formed against you. You know, I was praying Isaiah 54. And, but to myself... And, and somebody came over, put their hand on my back, a gal, I, didn't, I don't know who it is yet, and she, she said, uh, she was whispering in my ear, I see the word vindication written over you. You know how encouraging that is when you're praying that very thing. I see the word vindication over you, and she gave me this word about vindication. She leaves about maybe, I don't know, a few minutes later, a guy comes over, and he puts his hand on my back, and he goes, I'm laying on the floor still. He says, the Lord's going to vindicate you. I'll see the Lord vindicating you. And I'm like, oh, man, that was powerful. And then a few minutes later, someone else comes over and says, quotes this verse about vindication. Says, the Lord says, this is your verse. This is a season of vindication. And it was a month or two later, we were in, I was in the front row and Michael Maiden came and he was preaching here and he called Kathy and I out and gave Kathy a great word. And uh, he turned to me and he gave me a great word. In the middle of the word, he said, I don't know, there's this vindication. The Lord's going to vindicate you. And he gives me this whole word on vindication, having no idea that I prayed it two months earlier and had three prophecies. And then I started getting prophecies, all these prophecies about vindication. And I believe that the Lord, that we're in a hinge season (laughs) and that the Lord is closing oppression. He's opening vindication, not just for me, but for all of us. Are you with me? And so... uh, uh, um, Isaiah 54, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be condemned. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication is for me, declares the Lord. This Romans 12, uh, uh, verse 14, uh, chapter 12, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Here's verse, listen to this. Never take your own vengeance, beloved. Oh, never take your own, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. (laughs) I just like that verse. It's in the New Testament. I'll read it again because it's so uncomfortable. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I know the stories about putting burning coals on heads, but I just thought it was cool that the Lord said, listen, if you don't stand up for yourself, I will stand up for you. If you take the towel instead of the sword, you are opening the door for me to vindicate you. Um, I want to end with this, the story of Esther. And um, you probably have seen that movie. 
One Night with the King. Okay, not super accurate, but anyway, very good movie. So the short story is, is that Mordecai, who's Esther's actually cousin, I call him Uncle Mordecai. Esther is this beautiful woman who's, uh, you know, Mordecai's cousin. And the king, you know, divorces his wife. And the short story is, is that Esther wins a supposed uh, beauty contest and she ends up as the queen. And so it's kind of this beautiful, kind of weird, but beautiful story. And Mordecai is, uh, again, he's like her crazy uncle. He kind of raised her. And so he's always hanging around the palace and he's got a strong leadership gift on him. He's really committed to God. And the, in the meantime, there's a man named Haman that's the servant of the king. And Haman, um, he climbs the corporate ladder and he becomes the number two guy um, next to the king. And they have this big you know, party for his promotion and they invite all these servants and Mordecai's in the room and everybody bows to, to uh, Haman and Mordecai refuses to bow. And uh, Haman's pretty mad. He's pretty like, he's kind of obsessed with you know, having people uh, bow. And so he asked around, Haman asked around, like, why didn't this guy bow to me? Like, what's going on? Why does he, and every time he's in my presence, he never bows to me. And, and they find out, they do a little research, and they find out that Mordecai won't bow because he's a Jew, and he's committed to God and will bow to no man. And so Haman goes, okay, well, I know how to take care of this. We'll just kill all the people who believe that. That sounds like PC culture. Anyway, we'll just kill all the people who disagree with us, and we'll just kill them all. And so um, he goes to the king, and he says, hey, there's a group of people who actually, they actually don't honor kings. They actually have another king, and they won't honor us at all. And the king goes, okay. And, and he convinces, Mordecai, I'm sorry, Haman convinces the king to sign a decree to kill all the Jews, not knowing that his queen is a Jew. <laughs> Strategic mistake. So the next chapter, chapter four, Mordecai finds out about the decree, and the first thing he does is he puts sackcloth and ashes on, and he begins to go outside the course of the king with sackcloth and ashes on, and he's interceding with a loud voice, and he's making a ton of noise. And Esther looks out her window and she sees Mordecai like not looking royally. And she sends him some clothes, some royal clothes, says, hey, put these on and calm down. (laughs) And he says this to her. Mordecai says to Esther, (laughs) when Mordecai, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace will escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have attained royalty for a time such as this. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews you found in Susa, and fast for me, and do not eat or drink for three days and nights. And I and my maidens will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish." I want to just point out something that's happening in the midst of the story. The Jews have been, the king has decreed that the Jews are about to die. And, and, and Mordecai makes this amazing, incredible, strategic move in that he takes on the towel. Are you with me? He puts ashes on his head. 
He puts sackcloth on. He takes off his royal clothes, and he gets low. He's become a hinge. He's become a catalyst to shifting the problem. He refuses to defend himself, and instead, he gets low. And he begins to weep and wail and humble himself. And Esther's like, hey, hey, you know, you're embarrassing me. She sends him the royal clothes and he goes, wrong season, girl. You better get low too, because you won't be spared. And all of a sudden, Esther wakes up to the fact that they're in deep, deep trouble. And chapter five Esther implements the first stages of the plan. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet, which Haman isn't aware that she's about to have him for dinner. And he's pretty excited about going. Verse uh, chapter 12 of Esther. So Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come to the king's banquet. (laughs) And yet all this didn't satisfy me. And his wife and all of his friends, Haman's friends say, hey, what you should do is build gallows. And then you can hang Mordecai on the gallows. And then you'll feel good about yourself. So he builds gallows before he goes to the banquet. And the night before the banquet, chapter six, the king can't sleep. And he's thinking and just restless. And he calls a few of his servants and he goes, hey, you know that guy that saved my life a while back? What's that guy's name? They go, Mordecai. Yeah, that guy. Did we do anything to thank him? And they're like, not even a, nope, not even a thank you card. <laughs> he goes, oh. He calls Haman in. Hey, what should the king do for someone he really, 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 really wants to honor? And of course, Haman thinks it's him because he's so arrogant. He goes, oh, what he should do, oh, I know. He should put the king's robe on him. He should put the king's crown on him. He should put him on the royal donkey. And he should march him through town going, this is what the king does for people he loves to honor. And and the king goes, awesome. Go do that for Mordecai. (laughs) And Haman literally has Mordecai on a donkey with Mordecai in royal robes, a crown on his head. Can you imagine? The guy he hates He's walking through town. The donkey goes, this is what the king does for the people he loves to honor. It's what the king does for the people he loves to honor. He gets home and tells his friends what just happened. And his friend goes, oh, are they Jews? And he goes, yeah. He goes, oh, you're dead. God protects Jews. Sorry, you didn't tell us what ethnic group they were of. God protects Jews. You're dead. And he goes from there. Haman goes from there to the banquet. And at the banquet, you know what happened. They're sitting down and the king's like, hey, uh, okay, we're here. Uh, your feet, your good wine. Food looks great. Why are we here? And she goes, uh, well, you just signed a decree that all the Jews should be killed. He's like, yeah. He's like, she's like, I'm one of them. I'm a Jew. And it was your evil Haman who talked you into it. And now Haman knows what's happening. He's just been invited to a barbecue. 
and they're having him for dinner. And of course, the king arrests Haman and he's hung on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. It's a crazy Old Testament story. But I believe that we are in a season of vindication. And I think over the next year and a half, you're going to see people who are against us be suddenly for us. You're going to see people who spoke against us come and and ask for forgiveness. You're going to see people in your personal life, because I don't think this is corporate. I think it's personal too. And you're going to see people in your personal life, family members, people who got, it's just all this stuff. I just see it right now. I want to be careful. I see the Lord doing something powerful. I want to read you just this last thing and then we'll be done. I'd be careful when a man humbles himself and you are his enemy because he is poised for possibility. He may look like a little bird, but he has a big God behind him. You may not even be able to see it coming if you don't have eyes of humility. It's a hinge season in which one door closes, another opens. Humility closes the door of oppression, but it opens the door of possibility. I'd be careful attacking someone who bows to humility instead of stands to defend themselves. They may, look like a, they may not look like an eagle. They may not look like an owl. They may be all dressed up in a little sparrow outfit and look like they have nowhere to go. But I want to tell you that his eye is on the sparrow. And that sparrow doesn't fall from the nest without his intense concern. If you are a man's enemy and you see him reach for a towel instead of a sword, you better be careful because he just enlisted the God of the angel armies. It took Peter denying Christ three times to realize that towels are more powerful than swords. If you are building gallows for Mordecai and you see him covered in sackcloth and ashes, you better reconsider your ways because you are about to get estered. <laughs> I like that last one. You are about to get Esther. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. How many of you in this room need vindication? Like you need it. Like, like you don't want it. You actually need it. Like you need vindication. It's awesome. Is there anybody who didn't? Because it looked like everyone raised their hand. Okay. I, I just want to pray for us right now. Because I feel like this is not a teaching, obviously. I think this is a whole prophetic thing we're going through. Give me your ashes, creating hinges, opening the door to possibility, and God vindicating this season in life. So I'm going to pray for you. Lord, I just thank you. And I pray, God, that we would be a people who find the towel. I pray that we'd be the people who find the towel. I pray for all of us who want to defend ourselves that we would find the towel, get low, and pray for our brothers and sisters to find a place of reconciliation. Lord, I pray for the financial woes that have happened here. I pray for the lawsuits that have been dishonestly waged against people. Lord, I pray for just the things that are going on in culture, the, the abortions and all that's going on. Lord, I thank you that even the, even the decree that the Supreme Court made is a hinged time in which you are closing a door to oppression and you are opening the door of opportunity. Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters. I pray for our politicians. I pray for our government people. I pray for our teachers. Lord, I just pray that, this, that everyone would enter into this season of going all the way down to the top. In Jesus' name.
Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelton.com. Have an awesome day.